Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Stunned. Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, The league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, joined by my co-host, colleague, and really good friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Excited to get into our final episode of the One Series Player Reviews. Yeah, that makes two of us. And we saved the saying best for last seems unfair. I think most exciting for last, diving into three of the uh, uh, kind of cornerstone young players of the team. Um, and that's Chris Duarte, Tyrese Halliburton, and Isaiah Jackson. So we have a lot to dig into. I guess, you know, where do you want to get started with on this one? I have Chris, so I'll probably be going in the middle, but how do you want to get this one started up? Let's just start with Isaiah Jackson. That sounds like a good a good place. I think it's a good – yeah, that is a good place. Um, First of all, because I did put it on Twitter, but I was going to make it my one number, but just because I think it's insane and I also want to get your take on what you think of it. I don't know if you saw my tweet, but Isaiah Jackson had 19 um, completed alley-oop dunk shots, according to how the NBA classifies shots. And that is the most of, he played 541 minutes. That is more than any Pacers team since the 2012-2013 season when that team had 26 alley-oop dunk shots. So what is your reaction to that number? Like, uh, and just to put it into further context, he had more in those 541 minutes than the last three Pacers teams combined. It's kind of, uh, what's a good way to put it? It's refreshing is maybe a good way to put it. I, I mean, I just, I think I felt that throughout the year, like, Whenever Ajax was out there and, and he would go up for a lob, I'd be like, oh, yeah, the Pacers can do that now. Like, there's a guy who can catch lobs on this team. And it sounds so minute, but, like, legitimately, the, like, we've talked about this multiple times. Over the last three years, there has not been an actual lob threat on the team for the most part, like, ever, had, okay, at least zero, consistently. They had zero lobs in the 18-19 season. That sounds about right. That sounds very correct. Uh, unless, you know, Bojan's going up for a lob. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it's and not to this is not to sound slanderous, but it just always makes me kind of laugh a little bit whenever Miles mentions being a lob threat, um, because that's never really been a thing, but uh, yeah, um, it, it's I think refreshing would be my word that I come with. 
See, yeah, I mean, I thought when I was sharing that stat that the reaction was going to be like exactly what you just said, like, oh, cool, like IJAX can do this thing and we haven't seen this in a while. And somehow it turned into like, I don't want to say think pieces, but lots of tweets like as indictments of roster building. And I don't know if that's necessarily what my take is. Like, I don't really think that like, because I mean, let's face it, the last time this team was competitive, David West and Roy Hibbert were the bigs and the NBA has changed a lot since then. But in fairness, like Sabonis was ranked fifth in the NBA this season and points scored on the roll per game. And that was, you know, with him being surrounded by virtually no shooting and people constantly sucking in and pulling over to the middle of the floor. So like in terms of vertical gravity, like they were getting gravity interior wise with him rolling. It just, you know, it's not him soaring above the rim to get it, but it was providing roll gravity just in a different way. So like, if I was pointing at things that I was going to indict for like roster construction, it would mostly just be about the nonstop injuries and the lack of credible shooting and, uh, the defensive deterioration over the last like two years. So, um, I just wanted to put it out there that I was mainly just sharing that in celebration of IJAX rather than it turning into yeah, an indictment of the fast. team. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so onto the clip after I shared that number. Um, I actually, once again, have picked something from the Memphis game, if oh, you can believe it. Interesting. Yeah, I know. And it was even when they were down by almost 30 points that this play came about. But it's in the second half and it was at the point in time where they had just been overwhelmed by the tidal wave that is Memphis in transition that they came out and were like three quarter or half court trapping. And Ijax actually gets back and is at the free throw line and then comes up clear to the half court to trap, I believe Tyus Jones here. They force the ball out of his hands and he has his foot almost at the half court line and gets all the way back to prevent a pass to Steven Adams directly under the rim. Then when the opposing um, Memphis guard at the wing slashes, he rotates off of that rotation and blocks the shot. So I just wanted to show like that ground coverage is insane. Like that's really ridiculous that somebody can do all of that in one possession and still get that block. So again, not going to be my one number. Well, actually it kind of is, but There were, I looked up, there were a total of, let's see, 55 players in the entire NBA who recorded at least 50 blocks and 25 steals this season. And only two did so in less than a thousand minutes played. And one of them was a Kongu with the Hawks and the other was Isaiah Jackson. And Isaiah Jackson did that in only, you know, right around 500 minutes. So he ranked in the 99th percentile of block percentage and the 92nd percentile of steal percentage. And this is with like, I think you and I both kind of agree that like, this is with his defense overall being extremely underdeveloped and he's still creating that degree of chaos. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, his defense is uh, a work in progress, I think is the best way to put it. And like, I think that's almost what makes it so intriguing too. Like, um, like it brings up a lot of the interesting concepts of like, do you want to draft somebody who is kind of ready to play or do you want to draft somebody you can mold into playing? And I think obviously like we've talked about, there's a lot that goes into like, okay, well, how moldable is a guy? I think you and I would both agree. Like Ajax has shown really good flashes of feel too, that make us think, Hey, like this guy could be pretty moldable. Um, 
And that's what makes it so impressive. Like the amount of plays where his steals and blocks are recovery plays because he, you know, takes a wrong step, but then is still able to get back in. And it, it just makes me think, okay, well, in a year or two, when he's able to be more consistent and um, maybe in a more stable defense, like how good does that look? And I think that's what's so encouraging and exciting about him. Yeah, definitely. And off the defense, if we just want to keep going at that, I mean, I do think that there can be sometimes a slight negative because he does want to swat everything yes. to a degree, and he can be a bit of a moth to the flame in pick-and-roll coverages. So, like, yes, he's getting a lot of blocks, but sometimes him getting a lot of blocks leads to him being somewhat out of position. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, the number that I picked was 8.4, and that's his percentage of twos that he blocks when he's on the floor per basketball reference. And just to put that into perspective – that's the same block percentage Miles Turner had in the first season when he led the NBA in blocks. So like, and that's not me comparing his defense to where Miles Turner is at currently. Like, I think that we, most people can probably look and see that Miles has a, you know, better knack for defending in the pick and roll at this current point in time. But um, again, like those numbers, like, I can't say I would have expected, like even seeing what he had done at Kentucky, I can't say I would have expected him to to pop to that degree this early. But the other part of this um, is his foul rate that we probably need to touch on a little bit because I believe that he ranked in fouls per team play per cleaning the glass is 6.1% percentile i believe so do you i mean just looking around the league do you see any other comparisons of you know somebody having foul trouble as a rookie and then them correcting that or do you have like examples of where it hasn't really been corrected and i know i'm probably putting you a little bit on the spot there but well i actually have a couple of both i mean i think the first thing that i would think of is number one like miles was super foul prone his first couple of years in the nba like i don't I mean, I'd have to compare the foul percentages. Like, I don't think he was quite as bad as Ajax, if we're being honest. Uh, was he? Or or am I? No, I don't I don't have Miles' number in front of me. Uh, well, I do. I just, like, I definitely remember foul trouble being an, an issue for him early on. Um, but then you can also counter and look at, like, I think they're very different players, but in terms of, like, similar ideas, like Jaron Jackson Jr., um, who is, like, I mean, he was a borderline defensive player of the year candidate, but – the reason he was borderline is because of the fouls. And that's been a huge issue for him in the playoffs. And I think you can kind of um, draw that to hijacks as well. Obviously, again, different players. I think Triple J is obviously a better prospect and has a theoretically higher ceiling that he's, he's already hit to, to a degree. But like, yeah, I think um, you can look at that and definitely uh, be like, hey, you know, this is a, definitely a, something that you need to bring up and think about. Yeah, I think that's a good example because I looked and I had misspoken. The he yeah, he averaged 6.1 fouls. That's the percentage of how many fouls the player committed per team play and he was in mm-hmm. the ninth percentile being Isaiah Jackson. So Jaron Jackson Jr. um dropped to 4.2% this season after being at 6.4. I think another comparison is that Robert Williams had struggled with foul trouble as well. Yeah. Um he was at 5.9% and what Emmy Yudoka did moving him positions um changed that to 3.1. I mean, I think even to an extent, like if you look at this Memphis series, like I know that there's 
some polarizing opinions on whether they should have taken Steven Adams out of the rotation or not. But one downside, if we are going to point to that, is that Jaron Jackson playing at the five puts him in more of a position to be fouling than if he was, you know, still playing with Steven Adams on the floor. I think that there's benefits and drawbacks to that, but um, we've seen that that did reduce um, some of Robert Williams's fouls, but I guess too, I would ask like, and I didn't watch all of these back. I don't know if you did, but like just out of memory, do you see the foul trouble as being more something, you know, where he can't stay in front and has to foul them? Like, or it's over aggressiveness or like lacking the discipline to house understand like what he can do on the floor. I think it's more the latter than the former personally. Like I think, I mean, he's shown incredible lateral quickness for his size and it's not even just for his size. It's just in general. Like I think that he's somebody who, like we talked about, I mean, if he does iron out some of the footwork and technique, like I think he could very capably be a, a, a one through five and in, in most scenarios, switch guy if he's able to iron some things out. So I would say that um, that it's it's more just an over-aggression and, and sometimes taking the wrong step. Yeah, that's what I would say as well. And in addition to, you know, having the slender frame at this point is clear. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was surprised that he didn't foul out in the game against Joel Embiid. I mean, yeah. honestly. Yes. Like, I mean, he, he kept it mostly under control in that one. And um, and that's with, like, his his – synergy numbers defending post-ups you know are probably what you would expect because he just doesn't have you know added strength yet at this point when he's only 20 years old but um a few more numbers that i want to throw out there to you when he was out there at solo five which he didn't play any minutes with miles this year so i'm just filtering this for no jalen no goga no sabonis that's 410 minutes played um the Pacers gave up 126 points per 100 possessions and 66% at the rim, 42% from three. So if we then though look at minutes where he would have played with either Sabonis, Jalen, or Goga, that's 130 minutes played. The Pacers gave up less than 100 points per 100 possessions. That's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, and you have to take into account that I'm sure yeah. some of that, like I didn't do that on cleaning the glass. I did it on PVP stats before we hopped on. So some of that's probably garbage time. Like, I mean, the, the, the most notable game that he played with Sabonis, I mean, they did start to chip away at the lead, but the most notable game that I can remember him playing minutes with Sabonis was up there in Toronto, which we had talked about on a prior podcast when they, you know, kind of just threw a bunch of switchy defenders out there to try to muck up the game a little bit and slow down Toronto scoring. And it worked to an extent. But it's interesting that, like, I mean, we know what some of his issues individually as a five have been defensively, like, to this point. It's not even just that he has, like, the lateral mobility and he can be a one through five switch guy. It's kind of that you need to. Like, he hasn't – he doesn't have the nuances of drop coverage yet. Um, And you see that he kind of, you know, can go back to the roller too quickly or, like, what you mentioned earlier, he can come out – at bad angles at times and we, he leaves his feet and other stuff, but it does make me wonder if some of that discrepancy in the numbers is a factor of if he switches out and then say the ball handler passes to a secondary handler, and then they basically are attacking in a four on four situation with him switched to the perimeter. If it's just like not having anyone else out there, because like all of their numbers, double big are better than when there's just one big out on the floor. And that, 
that's all the way down the roster in terms of solo centers. So the fact that they were allowing fewer points when there was somebody else out there, um, I think speaks to the overall complexion of the defense, but also just when they were in a switch scheme, just not having the right rotations and not necessarily having somebody else that can provide weak side rim protection if he's the only big out there. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it just speaks to having size out there too. Like um, one thing that I like thinking about and part of what plays in with the Cavs, like um, I think, and, and I mean, we talked about this a little bit on the, on the one of, one of the more recent pods we did, but like part of what worked for the Cavs is like, if you have that much length out there and the proper health principles are in place, like Larry Markin is not somebody who's typically able to stay in front of guys, but um, by having good help, and just, I mean, to, to his credit too, like I thought his footwork on defense was a lot better this year and he did do a pretty good job sitting in front of guys, but like him, Dean Wade, like guys who they did routinely put on ball, it worked because they had help from other guys. So like if you have Ajax out there or Jalen Smith out there, if it's harder for somebody to take a driving lane because they're driving into somebody with length that is coming in help, then I do think like it makes it a little bit more feasible too. Yeah is I looked at his defensive impact numbers and when he was the defender at the rim, they allowed 63.5%. And that's even with what his block rate was. So I think that that's another thing to consider as they try to improve the defense. But I did want to, before I go into the one over under, I did want to, since most of that centered around defense, I did want to talk offensively. Um, Aside from the lobs, which we know has an impact and is something that's new for the Pacers to be able to work into their sets, what did you see from him offensively? And what we can just include outside of some of his role possessions. What did you see from him offensively that you thought, hey, that's something? Well, it's actually kind of interesting because I feel like the stuff that we saw from him offensively that I really liked was uh, both at, at Summer League and in the G League. Um, I, I felt like his role partially like I I mean, that's part of where I'd love to see some some more stuff from uh, exit interviews just in terms of, you know, what, you know, how his role was shaped a little bit. Like, was he told to not shoot threes? Um, did they just want to use him less as a trigger man? Because like they did at times, but obviously not to the same extent that we saw in the G League, which makes sense. You know, that's going to change up. But um, I think like some of the quicker decisions that he showed. And I think sometimes the, it could get him into trouble. Like he threw a couple of passes where you're like, dude, that's like, I get the idea, but that was, that was the wrong, wrong play to make. But like, I, I do think he shows he's saying a knack would be the wrong way to put it, but he's showing like some intuitiveness to make quicker plays, quicker decisions with the ball in his hands that I really like. But I also think if that's really going to happen, it's going to come by him being becoming more of a stretch option, like a volume shooter in a way like we've talked about, you know, like making the defense care. Um, I totally blanked, but that's, that's mostly where I'm seeing that I'm, I'm interested. I feel like we didn't really see a lot of him as a short role player. In my opinion, would you agree with that? Yeah. Um, this is an overview. Synergy has him shooting 26.1% on all of his shots classified as jump shots. Yeah. We did see him hit some threes, but it didn't necessarily translate with what you're saying, like in the G League game where he made five or, you know, when they were in summer league and he hit some corner threes that were, you know, encouraging out of some of those actions. I mean, the one game they even started out in a play that um, was kind of like a corner pin in to get him a corner three deliberately. So 
I don't know that that necessarily completely translated over. Then in terms of the post-ups, I think he was three of 10. So we didn't really see a lot of him in the post. Um, and that was not necessarily for like, I mean, I guess we can kind of know where the post fits into this overall offense, which, yeah, yes. you know, we it doesn't, know that. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I still think there were spots where like using him as a sealer, um, could have been more successful if they would have looked at it a little bit more. They did a few times. Um, I remember in San Antonio shortly after I had written the piece about, you know, using seal screens as a way, because they don't have like a cast of really physical bigs to this point. It's a lot of young guys would be a way to help the guards be able to get to the rim against some of the switching. And, and he did start to do some of that, but I guess like for me, it all depends on, what you're saying, like to know how they envision using him next year, but like the catch and drive situations are a little bit of an adventure. Like, I think if that's going to become something for him, he's going to have to work on the footwork a bit because there were some flashes where what you're saying is true. Like, not that this is necessarily a catch and drive, but like he was in a handoff situation. I remember he, he recognized the switch, put the ball on the floor and actually spun out of it and put the ball on the floor with his left and got to the basket and scored. That was nice. And then I remember another game where, yeah, I don't think he was on the short roll very much, but he caught it in the middle of the floor, used the pass fake to the wing to shift the defense and then went to the rim and, and finished with like a finger roll right in front of the basket. So sometimes he can pull off that type of stuff, but then there's other times where it's like, what is happening here? Like, yes. Um, like, I, I think it was a game when they were playing the Bulls, if I remember correctly. And, like, he's up at the top of the key, and Matt Thomas, he has a switch against, and he's sagging off. And, like, he could shoot the three. There's plenty of space to shoot the three. But he takes two dribbles to take a pull-up two that then, like, obviously he has size on, on his release over Matt Thomas. But, like, why take a pull-up two in that situation instead of just shooting the three right where you're at when you're open? Or, like, I remember when they were in Atlanta – and he caught the ball along the baseline and Kevin Herter was defending him. And it's like, you know, you could go into a back down there and try to get closer to the basket, but he took a step back two. he took like four or five step back twos in those types of situations this year, which, you know, maybe I can see that. Like if you're getting being guarded by Embiid and you clearly don't have the strength advantage and you're in there and you can viably get off a step back two to create separation. I can kind of understand that, but there was moments this year where he did that against guards. And I, I didn't really get why that was uh, a shot that he was, I don't want to say hunting, but the one that he was going with. So um, I think we're going to need to see a little bit more of a diversified arsenal because I think that the longer he's out in the lineup, while it is very hard for taggers to be able to stop um, what he can do, in terms of his vertical pop, I think that you'll see teams start to scheme for that a little bit more than what we were seeing toward the back end of last season, given that he was in and out of the lineup. And also just how sometimes, I mean, we talked about this before, how teams would match up. They would very much match up like he was going to be the lower usage big, even in minutes when Jalen Smith was out there. And I think in the long run, like you're going to see that, I mean, disregarding miles. Like if he's out there, I think you're going to more see Jared Allen guarding him or Robert Williams and the Celtics being like, Oh, he's the guy who's going to be involved in screen and roll a lot. So we want to put Robert Williams over on whoever the Jalen Smith in that lineup is. Um, see more of those types of adjustments where you're going to want to see him add a little bit more versatility, but then it's like, you look at all of his numbers, like just what I was saying with the block and the steal percentage. Um, the fact that 
let's see what it, what it is. When he played with Tyrese, his percentage on twos um, changed, I believe. Yeah, he shot above 60% on twos when Tyrese was on the floor and 55% when Tyrese was off the floor. So you can also just see what their chemistry is. And I think that that means something too, because, you know, having Isaiah Jackson, who is like, if you look at the bigs, is going to have the most role, role gravity of the options on the roster. That helps Tyrese get downhill as well. That helps him get into his floater and also add some unpredictability in terms of, you know, what Tyrese's eye manipulation is and his ability to throw, you know, you know, a fake lob pass or a skip pass or an actual lob or a floater. Um, that's a good pairing between the two of them. So then kind of folding into all of this, I'll just go ahead and go into the one over under and I picked 24. And that is my question to you of how many of his minutes in terms of percent do you think he will play at the four next year? Oh, that's a good question. I'll provide some context here momentarily. Um, that's, that is how many minutes that basketball reference categorized him at the four. And when I filtered it individually for having centers off the floor that are centers on the floor with him, that's also what number I came up with. So um, if you look at Sabonis, I was looking to see what they did in the year when he first started playing with miles in 2018, 19, but I'll, I'll let you kind of talk through what you're looking at while I pull up the Sabonis numbers to see how many minutes he started playing at the four before he became a starter when he and miles oh. were just playing, you know, smaller windows together. Yeah. Um, I think I, I mean, this is probably me just saying that I want it to happen. Uh, so I'm going to go with 60%. Um, it's not going to happen, but it sounds really nice. Uh, especially like if, if miles is back like he has to play the four like I, I just don't know how he cannot play the four um but then again if Jalen's back Jaylen, well Jalen played most of the four you don't think that Isaiah Jackson will be the backup five next year I mean I think he'll be the backup five but like you have to play them together at some point right like yeah I mean in 2018 so probably like 40 percent of his minutes at the four in 2018-19, when Sabonis was still coming off the bench before he became a starter in the bubble season, he played 24% of his minutes at the four. Um, they didn't play a lot of minutes together in the playoffs. It was mainly, I mean, and that was kind of a, a little bit of a source of frustration for me because I understood it from a team perspective because they had played as well as they had to be in position to potentially compete for home court advantage. But once Victor went down, I remember thinking very much at the time, like, hey, you know, Thad is an adult in the room. He's a good role player. Like I wanted there to be a conversation of like, Hey, for the rest of this season, we're going to start starting miles and Sabonis together now. And you're still going to get your same minutes. We're just going to, you know, bring you off the bench and they're still going to be staggered to play minutes at the five, but so that we can see them against starting caliber players. And that wasn't a thing that happened until, you know, the following year. And I felt like that delayed kind of evaluating what the ceiling of that was going to be a little bit, but um, then by the time Sabonis was the starter, he still played, um, he played 53% of his minutes at the four the following year. But I mainly think that it's still going to be a situation like what that was that I think that they'll start miles. And I think that miles is going to see an increase in minutes because to this point, I mean, I don't have that number in front of me, but I don't think he averaged 30 minutes per game this year. So, you know, if you look at what minutes load Sabonis had as, you know, the more established 
five in that situation, playing closer to 35, sometimes more under Bjorkren. Um, I think that's what it's going to be for Miles. I think that Isaiah Jackson will most likely be the backup five, and then they'll play some at the four. So I don't know how much I anticipate that changing unless they unless you know they do keep Goga and they really just think that Isaiah is ready to be the starting four. Do you think he's ready to be the starting four? No, no. But I think like this is where this is where some of my frustration comes through because I mean part of him not being ready to be the starting four is why you should maybe start him at the four, if that makes sense. Like yeah. that, that probably doesn't make sense. But like, I mean, if you're just pigeonholing him into being the backup five because you you aren't ready for him to play the four, then like, what are we doing here? Why was he the pick? Why are we doing this again? You know, like, yeah. I, it, I just find that frustrating. Like, I, I think if you, it, it, yeah. Part of the reason why I took us on the journey that we did, especially with some of those numbers where I said that they held opponents under 100 points, and, and that's a very small minutes sample. Like, let's be fair, that's 130 yeah, minutes. Yeah. But that they did hold opponents under 100 when he was at the four spot with another center on the floor is that I think that there's some experimentation you can do and not that you're going to completely be able to copy and paste and implement what's Boston's doing with a whole, you know, starting lineup full of solid defenders. I don't really think that's going to be a thing, but I do think that what I've said many times on this podcast, that there is something to the ground coverage that we're seeing in the first play, some of the types of mistakes he makes and how you could use that as an asset while still minimizing his potential to get into foul trouble and, and, you know, sometimes be out of position if he's having to defend one, five pick and rolls with miles there to still be there. Like you can still switch Isaiah Jackson out. You can switch one through four because we know he's capable of doing that. But then, you know, if they do advance the ball away from the switch with Isaiah Jackson, you have miles back around the basket to protect against that instead of the reverse, where if you're playing miles, just a solo five, like I said on, I think it was the miles pod that the one kind of benefit to having him out there with Sabonis was most teams are going to be like, Hey, Sabonis is the weaker defender. That's who we're going to call up to get the switch. And then because you called Sabonis up to get to the switch, you still have miles back there. Like if Sabonis isn't out there, teams are going to be calling up miles. Like that's just what the reality is going to be. That's the, that's where they're going to look to attack even though we know what he can do, but it's going to be pulling him away from the best thing that he does, which is protect the rim. So I do think that there's definite fit between the two of them defensively and offensively. I mean, I think that Isaiah Jackson does provide more role gravity. And I think that, you know, miles in that situation would be the more natural floor spacer. It's just about, you know, we've heard a lot in these interviews, another video that got posted to Valley sports about, you know, this is what I've been waiting for to play full-time five. And like what we said on the other pod, I don't know if they're both out there, if he's actually going to be defended by fives. I, I have some question to that based on what we saw when Isaiah Jackson was out there with Jalen and other minutes, whether, you know, teams would actually put Joel Embiid on miles or Rudy Gobert on miles. If they could instead put them on Isaiah Jackson, who's mostly going to be making an impact around the rim and with roll gravity. So that's the type of question they're going to have to answer. And I mean, some of that will come down too to whether, you know, miles wants to sign an extension and whether they keep him here long-term and what they do. But I do agree with you. Like some of it is a little bit murky in that, you know, you did make the pick, you did trade to move up to make that pick for Isaiah Jackson. And if you do plan on keeping miles because he is younger and closer to this core, 
how do you maximize them at the at the same time and what's the best way to do that i feel like is um kind of the biggest question hanging over that do you have any closing thoughts on isaiah jackson or anything i said there no i mean i i, I agree but i think part of like we were talking about this a little bit before we get on the pod part of why i think i really want to see this team um com- commit to losing is the wrong way to put it but just committing to development because i don't think that they do commit to development just full honesty like a lot of stuff they do like if you're committing to trying to be a play in playoff team i'm not saying that you can it's not that you can't be a play in playoff team that that is still developing guys but i think if if they're going to make decisions that do pigeonhole some of the guys in the roster into playing more limited roles because they are so focused on winning next year i do find fault with that just because like you mentioned like Yes, in, in the grand scheme of things, the 19th pick, I believe that that's what I checked was the 19th pick, right? I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I think he was 19. Um, regardless, the moves that you make to bring in Isaiah Jackson, when you you hype him up as being potentially a four, and I think that's what the, the biggest sell is for him. Like, if he can be that guy at the four, if you can get him to, the, to that point, if his skills develop and, and he's able to get to that point, then that's what makes him a super intriguing, exciting player. And I just question whether or not that's going to happen if they are just kind of penciling him as the backup five. So, yeah, definitely uh, going to be something that you and I are tracking and highlighting all of next season. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. Yeah, I mean, and it also will have to do with who they draft as well. Yeah. I mean, there's some four or fives at the top of the draft, um, and we don't know what picks they're going to have. So to be determined to an extent. Yeah. And I will say this, the one benefit to it is, you know, if you have Miles and Isaiah Jackson on the roster and depend whichever way they go, even if Isaiah Jackson starts as the backup five and still gets some early windows um, as the four to see both realities, you can still develop him in case, you know, let's pretend this is all me speaking hypothetically. Let's pretend that Miles doesn't sign an extension and you're thinking, Hey, you know, Isaiah Jackson might need to play the five for us moving forward. The benefit to that is he can still be learning from miles in the interim, which, I mean, there has to be some benefit to that. And I think that Isaiah did mention that in the little sit down he did with Pat Boylan that you can watch at pacers.com that like, it was helpful to him to be able to go over there during games and be able to pick Miles's brain about various coverages and whatnot. So that is one side benefit to it, but Anyways, we can move to Chris Duarte, who is, I guess I just spoiled. That's who you have. <laughs> no worries. I already said it earlier in the pods. We're good. Um, my play is pretty simple for him. It's, uh, I think, uh, just a quick ode to Duarte. Uh, don't forget about how awesome his uh, his rookie year was to start off. Obviously, the injuries really ham- hampered him, especially the ankle as the season went on, but like was consistently in, in the rookie of the year talks for the first month um, and would have probably been first team i mean we'll, we'll know what the teams are in the next week or so i think as the awards continue to leak out but um i mean was looking like a, a first team all rookie guy for the first month or two of the season before injuries started to, to hit him but 
This is a, from a January 20th game against the Lakers. Um, Chris Duarte is coming off the, the right wing uh, out of an empty corner pick and roll with Gogo Bataze. He has Austin Reeves on him, fellow rookie, pretty solid defender. Um, Reeves uh, is going closer to the nail coming off the screen. It's a, it's not a great screen from Goga for being completely honest, but that is, that is the norm. Um, but Chris goes into a step back going left, which as you've noted many times is where he's more comfortable going. Um, but Chris does, does a really good job selling that he's going downhill and then plants off his right foot into a really crisp step back and cashes a three. And it sounds small and minute, but like, I just, every time I went back and watched that play, I thought of how often Malcolm really struggled to, and this is not, again, not meant to slander Malcolm, but like I've just thought about how often Malcolm really struggled to create separation and capitalize on it like that. Like um, everything for Malcolm has felt tough as a jump shooter in Indiana and seeing Chris, like, I think he only shot 31% on pull of threes this year at, at, you know, as, as he finished out the year, but still, I think um, adding Tyrese definitely changes things up too, but I do think Chris's biggest skill still is like his ability to create space on his jump shots and, um, you know, potentially add some more variety as a movement shooter. Um, so that was the play that I picked up because I, I remember just watching that live and, and watching it back and going like, Hey, there's not really anybody else on the team that can kind of come close to doing that right now. Yeah. His, his footwork, I think is probably one of my favorite things about him as a player, oh, um, especially in the mid range area, if we're being honest, because yeah. was that game in, LA or are you talking about the home Lakers game that was in LA okay yeah because I thought that was the strongest stretch of the season for me like when he played against the Clippers and the Lakers um, when they went into Golden State and he had you know those the Clipper and Golden State game were probably his two best games of the year for being honest um that road trip was really strong for him and I remember the one game against Golden State where he used a probe dribble came out the other side and used a reverse spin out of it and stepped back into a baseline two after creating separation and like, and the other things about that game too. And then that road trip was, you just noticed him. Like, I mean, he was already instinctual to begin with, but like, I thought his patience got better where there would be games earlier in the year where, you know, he wants to shoot and tear apart a hedge and, and be able to get a shot off. And that's great that he's able to do that. Like that's, that's a valuable skill, but there was times where he would stay on the ball too long and then it would become a turnover. And like, he was drawing, you know, exaggerated coverage coming across half court by the second half of that game because he had played as well as he did. And, you know, just bringing it up in transition and knowing, you know, I'm going to get off the ball quicker because that's going to come. I thought that stuff showed up better in that little spurt of the season. And it is unfortunate because between dealing with the shoulder that looked like it was bothering him for quite a while before he stopped playing with the shoulder. And then, you know, in December he had the COVID and then, his significant other, he was out for a little bit, rightfully so, for the birth of his child and then coming back and having the toe injury, you know, kind of made his season a little bit more segmented than you would have liked where it seemed like he would build momentum and then, you know, he'd have to sit out for some games. But, um, yeah, I mean, when you look at his numbers, 21%, I like that you brought that up because 21% of his threes were unassisted this year of his made threes. And I think it was around 52% of his twos. So like, just to compare that to Justin holiday, which, I mean, these are not identical players, but if we're looking at like who we've seen as representative of like the shooter on the team, quote unquote, like only 3.2% of Justin holidays threes for the Pacers this season were unassisted. And the year before, I think Doug had one. 
So like that wasn't really an option. And like, it's not because those two didn't offer value and they offer different value because I think what you said before too, like if I was picking, you know, a handful of things that I thought Chris needed to work on, like his ability to shoot off screens needs to be something that's more prevalent next yeah. year. Cause he didn't shoot well off of those. And that wasn't really something that they went to a lot. Like they had one set very early in the year that was like flex into a baseline stagger where he, where he would come out, um, going from the left corner to the right wing. And it was in like three or four games. They didn't run that anymore. So um, I think that that needs to be there more, but the fact that he can actually get off his three, whether, like we said, whether it's against a switch, whether it's creating separation in the mid range, whether it's against a hedge, like there's not a lot of people who can do that. And Chris is one of them. In addition to just providing more gravity when he isn't shooting, like even as a rookie, you could see the difference there. I mean, I brought up the play before, but when you're running a double drag with Buddy as the first screener and Isaiah as the second, and you also have Chris Duarte in the weak side corner, your spacing situation and how much easier it is for Tyrese Halliburton to make a play has a lot to do with who, you know, Buddy and Chris are as shooters in addition to what Tyrese's passing feel is. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's what's so enticing because like we talked about down the stretch, like we really just didn't get to see Chris and Tyrese play all that much together, at least yeah, in the was way a bummer. That- yeah. Um, so I'm excited to see the two of them play together. And that feeds into my next number, though. I mean, next next, next question. Number. Um, wait, can I speak? Jesus, what am I even trying to say? <laughs> um, sorry. One of those days. Um, it'll feel, oh, would it be cheating if I go over under first? No, do whatever you want. Okay. Because it goes right into my over under and that's 60. Do you know what that is? Is that how many minutes he played with Tyrese? Uh, no. So it's he he he, 59% of his shots were unassisted this year. Yeah. Would you go over or under on 60 for next year? I might go under. Yeah. That's because what I, I just don't think too. he's going to have quite the same responsibility in spots that he did. Exactly. And that's what I was thinking. And I, is that a good or a bad thing? Like, I don't, I don't really think that we need to attribute it to good or bad. So that's maybe the wrong way to put it, but like, I do think it is interesting. Like I uh, just seeing some of the creation chops and and stuff that he got to show this year, you know, getting a little bit more comfortable as a passer, like, um, and this will feed into my number two. Like, I think we saw him clearly much more comfortable coming off of secondary actions. Um, Like, and we talked about his decision-making is almost like night and day as a secondary playmaker than, than, you know, having to run primary primary actions out of ball screens. Um, So like, I mean, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that I would probably take the under, but I still think it's valuable that he can't do that. Like, I might want to see it. I just think because, I mean, it will depend. I hate that we have to do this and hedge our bets every episode, but like (laughs) our buddy and Brogdon back and what roles do they have? And like our TJ McConnell as well. Like if you have all those people and they're healthy, there were times this season, you know, going back to the beginning of the year where, you know, Malcolm and Karis are both out or Malcolm and TJ are both out or, you know, whatever, where he was having to get pressed into a little bit more, um, even sometimes primary ball handling than what he was probably ready for at the current point in his career. Um, I think that he does need to master the nuance of when to pass and when to shoot and, uh, when to drive a little bit better. And especially when he's around the basket, I think working on late adjustments because his rim finishing, um, needs to improve as well. I think working on late adjustments for passes as well as just, you know, altering his body will help him in that degree, but I will take the under on that just because I think that 
I think I saw in his exit interview that he mentioned what I said, that like working on movement and off screens is going to be important for him this summer. And I agree. Cause I remember the first game that he came back against the Suns after he had been out in protocols that I noticed and not that these two players are at all similar, but like looking back at the series, the Denver Nuggets played against the Portland Trailblazers last year and watching at times how much Michael Porter Jr. would get pushed off his spot by Norman Powell going around screens and like you needed the Nuggets needed him to be more physical at times in those situations. Like, I don't think we always think about the fact that physicality is needed when you're running off of a stagger so that you don't get knocked off your route. And there was a few times where I don't remember if it was Mikel Bridges or who was guarding him where like they couldn't get the pass to him coming off those actions because he got bumped. So I think adding strength and like, not that I'm expecting him to be Doug McDermott, like what running off of a high wide pin or an away screen and swinging out to hit a three. I'm not necessarily seeing that, but like just more of what they can do off flare screens and have him, you know, come off some staggers and be able to stop behind the pick and square up and shoot. Or like the play that I said that they didn't even keep running, like maybe be able to incorporate that some, um, that's just going to make things even easier for Tyrese. Like it's going to lessen both of their burdens if he can add that in, because like I wrote this week, just the thing about guard screens. And like a lot of times if people want to go back there and read that, like a big part of the Pacers and getting continuity, they run those handoffs for the trailer or sometimes out of like, we've run a pick and roll, the big pops, we didn't get anything. Then they go into a handoff to the other side of the floor and they will have the person at the wing 45 cut to clear out. So they're getting, you know, an empty ball screen without a tagger over there. But we've seen in the playoffs, I've seen teams add little wrinkles into that where that 45 cutter will immediately, the Jazz do this, the, the Grizzlies do this, where that 45 cutter will either set a back screen for the handoff operator, or they will receive a screen, a pin down to then pop back out. Like being able to add that in with Chris Duarte and you can do that. Like imagine running that with Isaiah Jackson and Tyrese and Chris all together. There'd be so many options there if he can add that additional skill. So if he works on it this summer and he does, then I would think that the unassisted number will go down a bit because he'll be getting, you know, set up more easily with Tyrese running point and, um, I still think there'll be benefit to his ability to create space, but um, hopefully he can do have his burden a little bit less there in those situations, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And you hit on my number too. My number was, uh, well, indirectly, my number was 57, which is what he shot at the rim this year, which is not great. Um, and it's interesting considering that was kind of one of his strengths at Oregon was he was uh, pretty, pretty darn good around the rim. Um, so I was wondering, you know, we, we hit on it a little bit and I think he, he mentioned too, like, you know, needing to develop more counters and, and whatnot, but you know, where are you at with, with his, his rim finishing currently? I think a jump stop would help him a lot if I'm being honest. Cause like, I don't even necessarily think it's always about getting clear to the basket because I did mm -hmm. see little by little as the season went on that he got better at using a hostage dribble. Like there are in that game, I, or the road game against Phoenix, he got Chris Paul on his back, came in, planted both feet, and that just gives him more time to survey the floor and whether he's going to go into his own shot from there or if he's going to make a pass, you have a lot more options and more angles you can find when you don't leave your feet because you're not really going to make a bounce pass from the air, even though Tyrese occasionally, you know, boggles my mind with his ability to make bounce passes from the air. But that's a, a side point. Like, I do think that when he gets in too deep, if he doesn't get his defender on the, on his back, it's like what I said. I mean, this goes back if people want to look at the two plays I'm discussing um, when I wrote one thing, each player can work on. Um, he will leave his feet and get in there. And then he struggles to make the late adjustment. And because he stares down his passing targets, 
it makes it really easy for those defenders to read that. Like his turnover rate wasn't bad, but it ends up being he doesn't make the pass and then he ends up putting um, the ball up to the rim and then he's missing some of those shots. So um, I think that I would put it at late adjustments is the, is the area that he needs to get better in. And also just like if he's in transition sometimes, like what I'm saying, plant both feet in front of the basket and go up. And then you'll still have the option that, you know, if, if they fill the corners and the rest of your teammates catch up, you still have another thing you can do versus just, you know, where he's not drawing contact and it ends up being, you know, an all glass miss potentially. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. Um, I mean, like, I think the best way to put it is I think he is closer to figuring those things out than not. Um, And I'm excited to see what that looks like next year. Um, Do you have any other parting thoughts on Duarte? Because I think that just about wraps him up for me. I actually did have something I wanted to ask. Yeah. Let's talk about his defense just a little bit, because that is has to be a main area of concern for the Pacers. Um, Ideally with the rest of the roster the way that it is what do you see him doing defensively for the next version of a good pacers defensive team it's funny because we've talked about this before i think we talked about it around summer league and i think to me he's ideally defending ones and twos um like that's what he typically is best at uh, in my opinion like i think he's um a solid chase defender but also like he's not uh it's not that he's not strong, but like he's not really built to defend wings or like defend threes. Like I think he can do it in a pinch, but for the most part, I think he's at his best getting to either a roam a little bit and muck things up off ball. Cause I think especially early in the season when he was healthy and the defense was uh, some semblance of normal, um, you got to see him be like just pretty active. And like, he did a lot of stuff, you know, like he was really good at timing when to uh, you know, if somebody was, pretty clearly going into a shot, he would time in for a late contest. So some of the stuff that Tyrese did, you know, as after he came over, um, I think you can see some of that, but also like just playing on guards, I, I think is normally his best attribute in my opinion. Um, like he's able to, to use his length um, to kind of just crowd guys. Well, without getting beat off the dribble as much. And this is what's interesting. Cause I think everything you described pretty much also describes Tyrese. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Um, no, that's a good point. Um, I do. Th- would you say that he's a little bit better at staying solid in front than Tyrese though? Yeah. I mean, and this is, this is what I'm getting at because I looked up and the stat actually did surprise me. I mean, and this includes games against Sacramento. So not just the ones that he finished with the Pacers, but Tyrese ranked second in the league and, th- and blocked threes this year behind only Matisse Thibel. So I think the more that he can defend away from the ball and be using those recovery skills and his long arms and his ability, like he stays pretty solid on closeouts. Like he can run a guy off the line, stay solid, get the second contest and still block that shot because he does have the quickness. He does have the length and sometimes he can help over with like emergency rotations. Like I think some of my favorite plays of his this year have been like, you know, he's not even involved in the pick and roll, but like, you know, Cole Anthony snakes the pick and roll down in Orlando and he helps off from the office slot and blocks that shot from behind Um, his instincts and reading the flight of the ball. Like, I think that's something that he and Chris both have. 
and that they both also know when to dig the post or when they can stunt and when they can't. Like sometimes we think about reads only occurring on offense and reads occur on defense a lot too. Yeah. I think both of them do that pretty well and can judge how far they can help off and still get back to where they need to be. And this is part of the thing, because if the Pacers are going to go to a lot of switching, yeah, then some of this that. is semantics. Like some of it's just semantics. But if they aren't like there's so many times where I'm watching Tyrese, whether it's up in Detroit or whatever, where I'm like, I just want him to be guarding Corey Joseph so he can be doing more of that roaming and more of that helping. But because they are switching to the degree, it puts him in position to then, you know, be overwhelmed by a much bigger guard and, and Kate Cunningham. So if I look at Chris and we think back to the beginning of the season, I thought some of the times where they were most successful is like, you know, they play the Knicks and, you know, Kemba looked fairly washed this year, but just as an example, like they assigned Chris to Kemba Walker, let Brogdon guard Evan Fournier, put Levert on RJ Barrett. And the thought process behind putting Brogdon on Evan was not so much about, you know, him being better chasing around screens, but because he and Julius Randle, run handoffs in the way that they do that if they switch then Brogdon could and and did defend Julius Randle in the post okay in that game but it's about you know Chris is the player that had to do that are they you know one of the things the only things that I thought they did pretty well defensively and and the last game that they played against Phoenix the last game that Miles Turner played was they made the adjustment after halftime and told Chris you're defending Chris Paul you're picking him up full court and I did think that that slowed Phoenix's offense a little bit. So I agree with you. I think that of the two, Chris has a better shot of defending on ball and applying that type of pressure at this current point than Tyrese does. He's, you know, and still in his skinnier frame, not that, you know, Chris is a lot bigger, but point being like, we did see Chris do some of that. So if he and Brogdon and Tyrese are out there, if we're picking one of the three, I think that you're probably picking Chris, but that is going to take away somewhat of what, he offers you as an off-ball defender as well, unless they're just going to be switching everything one through four. And then, you know, everybody's going to have to be getting better, in my opinion, at defending on ball because and those situations, especially when, you know, it's a hunted switch where you're out on an island. Yeah, exactly. I think kind of what you got is like, are either of these players really suited to be part of a switch-heavy defense? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, We're I looked at that one. Yeah, I looked at the defensive versatility, and he defended point guards or ones according to Basketball Index, twenty-one percent of the time. Shooting guards, thirty-seven percent of the time, and small forwards, twenty-one percent of the time. So there was a—I wouldn't say that's necessarily a super even mix, but he did defend up a position. I mean, he defended power forwards thirteen percent of the time, so he did defend up a position more than I probably would have guessed. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm very interested to see what happens uh, next year for both him and, and Tyrese. So that'll be interesting. And I guess, I mean, and, that can, and that's I can, a great segue. Yeah, it leads us right over to talking about Tyrese. Caitlin, lots of lots of things started. to say here. Lots of numbers that I've tried to look up. I already spoiled that one about Matisse Thibel, but I did want to bring it up in reference to hmm. um, what we were talking about with Chris's defense. So my one play, I'm taking us to Boston when Tyrese almost had a perfect game from the field before he fouled out. Um, So we're in the third quarter. And for a lot of that game, I didn't completely understand what Boston was doing with their coverages against him. They were like soft switching. Sometimes they were rolling under on switches and, you know, probably not what you want to do, but they did get more aggressive in the third quarter. So Tyrese gets a second screen from O'Shea Brissett that brings Al Horford into the action. And then Al Horford actually surges out 
on that switch and pushes, you know, Tyrese about to the hash mark and Tyrese backs up. And in some of these situations throughout the year, we've seen him, you know, pass out of those shots, which is okay in certain circumstances. If the big, you know, if he draws that gravity and the big stays out, then you don't have a rim protector back there. In this case, they do have Tice on the floor as well. So he keeps the ball himself and actually attacks Al Horford in space and uses his really low crafty gather to go into his floater and draws a foul. And I think that's a really important step for Tyrese. We saw that a little bit over the last, you know, handful of games, not that he was racking up tons of free throws, but in that specific scenario that he's calling his own number out on an Island and actually drawing contact and doing it with his craft, not necessarily, you know, just juice on a drive, but making use of what skills he does have to do it against a big who is good at switching out. Um, I thought was a positive step forward. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, seeing the way that he did and didn't attack switches this year was really interesting to, to follow, both in Indiana and in SAC. Um, and, I, I mean, yeah, the Boston game was, like, kind of his pinnacle. Yeah, because you can't just look, like, you can look up his numbers on Synergy and be like, oh, he's, and it's true, he is really efficient in isolation, or he is efficient when, you know, he's the ball handler against the big. And sometimes his, his free throw rate doesn't even look bad by comparison to other people like that. But it's it's the volume and it's it's more so the shots he doesn't take. Yeah. Because he is as selective as he is. Like he's not going to take bad shots in this situation. And that's a good thing. But sometimes he can he can be a little bit, as we've said many times, too deferential. Like just to put a number on this, something that I messed around with the last two days while we were working on our schedule for these podcasts is there was 39 players this season who averaged over five minutes in time of possession. So 39 players. What I did is I took those 39 players and then looked up on PVP stats, what, how many free throw points they scored per 100 possessions. So if you look at that, Tyrese was among the players who logged over five minutes of possession this year. He ranked 30th among the 39 players in free throw points per 100 possessions with 3.76 per game. Now, that was almost an increase of a point over what he was doing in Sacramento, which was 2.43, but um, still not very high on the list given how much he had the ball, which is why I wanted to pick this clip because I feel like we need to see more of this moving forward. Definitely. Um... And I, I think you just bring up a really good point, too, because it's almost like, um, I mean, what's so same frustrating might be the wrong way to put it. But like this team needs somebody who will take the difficult shots and be, obviously they have to be good enough at them. But I think that's what's so. Uh, so mind boggling about Tyrese, like as much as like, I mean, if you just look at the box scores from his first 10 games in Indiana, you're like, this is the greatest pacer of all time. But like. Uh, like e- even with, with how many shots he was taking, I mean, you and I were both in the same boat, like we need him to take more, like he can be more aggressive. And I think that's what I want to see this next year. And again, that falls into more of the, how are they approaching next season? Because I really want to see him prioritize, like, not that he hasn't been, but just like, I want to see him put in positions to become that guy. Like, can he be that guy? Cause I think part of why you maybe make that trade is to see if he can, because I think the level of touch that he shows, I mean, the way he's developed as a ball handler and his ability to get downhill, like if you can find ways to maybe instill some more aggression and just get him more moments to try and take over games and show his ability to become a tough, a tough shot maker. Like he obviously, like he already has the tough 
shot making ability, but and the touch, but more just like, okay, can you be a guy like if we have five seconds left on the shot clock and you pull out a big on a switch, are you able to go take advantage of that? And more importantly, will you? Like that's the stuff that I really want to see this year because I think that's what is so in- intriguing about him. Like if you can draw out some more of that, like that's an insane player. Like, I mean, you and I are kind of both in the same boat. Like we kind of geek out talking over some things he can do. If he can become more of that or even just add some of that, like I, I still think that's just really what this team is looking for and missing. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to say because it's only his second season in the NBA, but assessing yeah. whether you think that's something he's going to do, I think is going to guide who else you want in the backcourt with him and how you build out the rest of the roster because this is my one number. My one number is three. And that's how many games he led the team in shot attempts after he was traded to the Pacers. Would and you have guessed that was higher than that? No, I probably wouldn't have. Because, um, I mean, I think those first three came before the All-Star break, right? Or at least one two of them. Of them. One, one of them was did. only one of them. It felt like yeah. all three of them did. But, yeah, I mean, it's a good it's a good highlight because as much as it looked like he was going to take a million shots at the beginning of the, his tenure, like that just wasn't really uh, – that, that wasn't in the cards. I mean, and some of it was like Buddy obviously had a very yeah, green light to sure. take as many shots as he wanted. But I mean, if you, I went through every one of his games and he had more where he ranked fifth or sixth in shot volume than he ranked first. I mean, that was a number of games. Like, I, I think he, he had, you know, five plus where he ranked fifth or sixth in the pecking order. And some of that is like, you know, they were getting blown out against Toronto or Port. You know, they had a huge lead against Portland, so he didn't play quite as many minutes. So other guys on the roster got opportunities and that's fine, but he only had three and you got to look at what the rest of the roster was like, this isn't like he got traded mid season and Malcolm and miles and TJ Warren and you know, whoever else is going to be on the roster were, were out there and he was deferring to them. Like some of it was with Malcolm whenever he came back, but like, and I'm not trying to degrade the other people on the team, but like he's out there with guys who played and the G league at times and they're taking more shots than him. So, like, if he was going to really expand his shot volume, wouldn't you have thought that this portion of the season on a brand-new team is when he would have done it? You would think, yeah. Yeah, so, like, I looked up then, too. He had a total of six games with the Pacers where he attempted 15 or more shots. And if you look through, they all kind of have something in common in that Malcolm Brogdon only played in one of them. That was the game that they won in Orlando, which to Brogdon's credit, he had a very good game in that one. Brogdon did not play in the other five. And Tyrese played 40 minutes in four of the six. He averaged over 37 minutes. So, like, it took him playing, you know, being out there a long time to get him to take 15 or more shots. So, and the other thing that they have in common is he upped his shot volume in these games. And he shot 48% from the floor overall and 43% from three. So it's not like he didn't scale up when he did take more shots. Yeah. Um, I, Which mean, is, I, I mean, that aspect of it is encouraging. Yeah. Um, I guess what I'd ask, I mean, what is your confidence level that he is going to develop some of that next year? So this is where I'm going next is that that what I said earlier, that there was 39 players this season, you averaged five minutes in time of possession and he's being one of them. I also compared that for usage rate. And this is the usage rate that's on 
nba.com, not client, not cleaning the glasses. I used it on nba.com because that's where I also got the time of possession. So the only player among those 39 who had a lower usage rate than Tyrese having that much time of possession was Kyle Lowry on the Miami heat. And that goes back to what we're saying and that it would make sense that Kyle Lowry would have a lower usage for one. He's a far more veteran player going to a heat team that already has, you know, Jimmy Butler and Tyler hero as a six man and, you know, a lot of depth. So I wouldn't expect Kyle Lowry to have a really high usage rate on that team. Um, but the fact that he was the, I mean, he had, uh, yeah, his, his usage rate was 19.5. The only other person that was close to this and on a prior pod, I did say, because, you know, Tyrese has talked a lot about, you know, watching clips of Chris Paul and, and wanting to learn from what type of reads he makes as a point guard. Chris Paul does have a usage rate below 20% because I said I wondered if Chris ever had, I, I doubt that he ever had a usage b- below 20. This is the first year in his career that he has. But again, like that's on a championship contending Phoenix team and Chris is in, you know, whatever year of his career he's in. Like he's a very veteran point guard at this point of time. So like, again, it just goes back to like, this was the roster construction. And I think at times like he wanted to be somewhat of accommodating, like when Malcolm Brogdon came back and, you know, maybe in part take a little bit of a step back there because you're learning to play with somebody else new. He had to learn to play with all new teammates, but at the same time, like it should have been fairly clear where the pecking order needed to be there. And I'm sure they were encouraging him to take more shots. So to answer your question, I'm not entirely sure if I'm, if I'm confident that he's going to grow in that particular area in terms of looking for more of his own shots. Like, And I think it's somewhat of a give and take because like I've mentioned, whenever we talked about Malcolm Brogdon, that like, I'm sure there's an inclusiveness to having a player like him as your quote unquote star and that his teammates, I have no doubt want to play with him and he is going to involve them. And there is a lot of good things that sometimes when he does defer, it creates, you know, better shots for other players, but if he's going to be your building block, I think that has to go up. So like just to bring up Chris Paul again, and maybe this isn't completely fair, but like in Chris Paul's second season in the NBA, so comparing to the same time frame as um, Tyrese, he averaged for New Orleans at the time 16.9 points, eight assists on 43% shooting. Tyrese, after he came over for the Pacers, um, scrolling up here, Average 17 points, nine assists on 50% shooting. So like just their raw numbers are pretty comparable there. So if you look at Chris Paul's third season, when he became an all-star, um, his usage rate went to, da, 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 da. sorry for people that are waiting for me to scroll down. His usage rate as a sophomore in the league was 23%. And in his third season, it went up to 25. So I ask you, and I know that we talked about what his usage rate would be in the minutes when Malcolm Brogdon was on the floor and that it dropped to 16% when Malcolm was out there. Do you see a similar jump? And this is the same question you asked me, but would you take the over on 23 and a half percent on Tyrese's usage? Tough question. Um, Well, I'm just, Thinking with my my what I want to happen, I'm going to say yes. But thinking logically, um, I'd probably take the under just because let's say Malcolm Brogdon isn't back next year 
which I mean, just based on some reporting, that does seem possible. Um, then yeah, I could see that number raising, but also okay, who gets drafted? Is Jalen Brunson brought in? Which we, I mean, I, I think that's maybe an entire entire separate podcast we might have to have at some point. And we talked about that in the last pod too. Um, that changes things too if he comes in. Um, there's a lot up in the air with this, and I. I really want to hit the over on this, but I do think it's going to be the under. Yeah, because, I mean, it depends on who all they're bringing back. Yeah, And I'm not saying that guys are going to be, like, competing for shots or something, but we do know that, I mean, based on what I'm interpreting from the interviews, it sounds like Miles, I mean, even going back to the beginning of this season, many made the perception video, wants to show that he can do things on offense that people don't think he can do. And he is going to be playing full-time at the five. I don't know who the starting four will be. I don't know if Buddy will still be in the starting lineup. I don't know if Malcolm Brogdon will be. But if he was already deferring to players who like, and again, I, I don't want people to think that I'm speaking poorly of Dwayne Washington and Terry Taylor and O'Shea, all of whom are players who I like. But like, if he was already deferring to those guys at times where, you know, O'Shea is taking more shots than him, there was, you know, a handful of games where Dwayne Washington Jr. took more shots than him. And some of that has to do with defensive coverage. Like I do want to point out that like every game is, you know, a separate entity and takes on its own life. But like, if that was already happening with those guys, I would suspect that it would continue into next year. Now I do think developmentally Tyrese will work on his game and there'll be new elements that will help him to get shots off in certain circumstances where we haven't seen it. But in terms of like sacrificing some of his efficiency to go ahead and get to the rim, I don't know. Like, I want to see more of the play that he made against Al Horford. I don't know if that's going to be a thing right away next year. And then it goes back in my head and the question becomes, how does that impact, you know, how you draft or you build out this roster? Because if you don't, and it's so tough to say, because it's only a second year in the NBA, but if, if you don't see him being somebody who's going to, you know, scale up in terms of usage, then do you need to add, you know, a scoring guard to the roster or other, you know, just flat out scoring? I mean, I don't necessarily think they're, they're going to have a hard time putting up points in the regular season because of the what he adds as a playmaker and a passer. I mean, their offense did improve down the stretch. I think they were like 12th in offensive rating after the trade, which was an improvement over where they had been prior. But um, like what we're seeing in the playoffs, he's going to see different types of coverage. Um, once they get to being that type of, at that level. Um, and if that impacts how you're, and I don't know that I have a clear answer to that. I don't know that I feel strongly either way, just from what we've seen thus far and that he was doing that with the given team, I kind of want to lean the under depending upon who else is back. Yeah, no, I think I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, that's not to say that we're down on Tyrese. No, no, I'm not down on Tyrese. I like what he did. It's just. In terms of whether he's going to scale up, I think is a big question that the Pacers have to ask and not because they're down on him either. Just what's the best way to support and optimize what type of player he's going to be is, I think, a valid question that they're going to have to be asking internally. I mean, especially as we get into these draft pods, when you look at a player potentially like Jaden Ivey or whoever, you know, whatever draft selection they get and how that would complement or perhaps not complement whatever vision in your head that you have for what Tyrese is going to be for this franchise long term. Exactly. Well, Caitlin, um, I think that wraps up our last player review pod. It does. We've made it to the end. So shout out to everybody who listened to our many hours that we've recorded on these and we appreciate you. And 
we had a little bit of a scheduling snafu with the draft pods, but that is what's next on our schedule. And we're excited to head into that type of content as well. That's absolutely right. I can't wait to dive in. Um, well, Caitlin, this was a blast. Everyone listening, thank you for listening. Thank you for keeping up with us as we as we embarked on this journey, uh, getting these pods through. Uh, and we hope you enjoyed this last one. As always, if you haven't already, be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. We want to hear from you. We want to get your feedback. Um, and also, let us know what you think. Uh, we have a lot coming in the next couple months, uh, as as do the Pacers, I hope. We'll see. Um, but, yeah, for today, that, 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 that's out for us. We're signing off. We'll talk to you later. Thank you again for listening.